Russell Gold has covered oil for almost two decades. Oil is what makes modern society function. It's the gasoline in our tanks. It's, it's the plastic in our lives. And now all of a sudden, we've just stopped using it. No one's sure exactly how much less oil we're using since the coronavirus became a global pandemic. But with so many planes grounded and cars off the road, it's a lot less. You know, I, I sit and I look at the numbers. I talk to people. I try to understand. And I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that we've essentially stopped using an enormous amount of oil. And when oil demand craters and there's still a lot of supply on the market, you know what happens. Look at oil prices completely decimated, tumbling, touching levels not seen since 2003. The average price for gasoline is $2.23 per gallon, all the way down. In fact, it's falling at about two cents a gallon every day. The only way to get oil prices back up is for producers to cut the supply of oil. But here's the weird thing. For the last couple of weeks, no one has been willing to do that. Everyone in the global oil industry understood that they needed to cut a lot from the market, but nobody wanted to be the first one to do that because the first people who do that, they're going to lose market share and they're going to lose revenue. So collectively, we just had all these oil producers continuing to produce, continuing to produce, hoping that somebody else is the one to make that sacrifice to shut their wells down. And that's why I sort of see this as a global game of chicken. Everyone was driving at very high speeds toward each other and hoping that the other person veers off at the last second. Today on the show, how the oil industry found itself caught in a global game of chicken and how it's trying to save itself from a historic glut of oil. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, April 10th. There are a lot of reasons why no one wanted to be the first to stop pumping oil. If you're an oil producer and you shut off your well, it might be good for oil prices, but it's not good for you. You quit the market and your competitors are going to fill that gap and take your customers. But it gets worse. When you do start pumping oil again, you're going to be hit with a huge bill. Because when you shut your well down, it's not just a matter of flipping a switch and then flipping it back on in a few months. When you turn the well back on, you might have lost pressure. So you're going to have to spend a few million dollars to put the pressure back in the well so it starts to flow. It's a very difficult situation to stop and restart your industry. And no one wants to be the country or the company to undertake that. So after the coronavirus took hold around the world, everyone just kept pumping. And the price of oil just kept dropping. This was bad news for big state oil producers who depend on oil money to drive their economies and support their political regimes. But it also hurt American producers, too, like those in West Texas, in an area called the Permian Basin. In the Permian Basin, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation. If the benchmark price of oil in the United States is about $25, that probably means a physical barrel in West Texas fetches 20 At $20, the Permian Basin producers are losing maybe $200 million a day. And can they sustain that? No. You're going to have a large swath of the shale oil operators that are going to have to seek bankruptcy. 
they're already under financial pressure because they were spending more money than they were bringing in. I suspect we would see a lot of consolidation and a lot of bankruptcies. What would that mean for the American economy? Well, it certainly wouldn't be helpful to the American economy. There are thousands, tens of thousands of jobs here in Texas and North Dakota and Oklahoma that would be affected. I mean, maybe one of the ways to think about this is that coming out of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, one of the things that led the country back out was that Texas was a fairly strong economy. It didn't really get impacted that much. This time around, uh, Texas will not be sort of an engine pulling the rest of the country. Texas will be the caboose uh, that the rest of the country is going to have to pull. All this turbulence in the oil market It's not just happening because of coronavirus. The international game of chicken actually started in early March, before coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. That's when oil markets suddenly stopped working the way they had for decades. Since the 1960s, a group of oil-producing states have worked together to regulate the price of oil. You know them as OPEC. OPEC is a a cartel of oil-producing nations that would get together, and when the market was oversupplied, they would cut back on supply. When the market appeared undersupplied, they would increase supply. OPEC's goal is to keep oil prices in a Goldilocks zone. A nice middle to high price where people can get the oil they want, they can get it at a price so that the oil-producing nations uh, have full coffers, and the market is smooth sailing. Saudi Arabia played a key role here. It produced so much oil, its actions alone can affect oil's price. So it was the group's so-called swing producer. When oil prices needed to go down, Saudi would pump more oil. When prices needed to go up, Saudi would pump less and take the financial hit. Saudi Arabia, a few years ago, got a little bit tired of being the only swing producer. So they said, look, we don't want to swing alone. We want Russia, one of the three big oil producers in the world, U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia, we want Russia to join with us. So we had something called OPEC+. And OPEC+, pretty much was Saudi Arabia and Russia acting together, figuring out how much oil they can put out in the markets. This worked for a while. But early last month, that alliance between Saudi Arabia and Russia fell apart. Saudi wanted Russia to cut some of its oil production, but Russia didn't want to. It didn't want to swing with Saudi anymore. And so Saudi Arabia pulled a power move. It started pumping more oil. Oh, absolutely. Saudi Arabia said we're going to increase production of oil right now. And then they were matched by, I believe it was Kuwait and the UAE. So effectively, as of mid-March, OPEC stopped functioning as a cartel. They stopped functioning as a market regulator. What we're seeing right now is a free market of oil for the first time in I don't know, six, seven decades. And that's what's both so scary and so exciting about this moment is that in a way we've been bowling with the bumpers on and the bumpers just went down. For the oil industry, this timing could not have been worse. Oil demand and oil prices were about to drop off a cliff because of the coronavirus. And now there was no cartel to force prices back up. It was every oil producer for itself. Coming up, how the oil industry is fighting to survive in a world flooded with oil.
Welcome back. After the blow-up between Russia and Saudi Arabia, it no longer benefited oil producers to work together to regulate prices. Instead, everyone was trying to grab market share for themselves. One way they did that was by undercutting each other on price to try to steal each other's customers. But another way was by kicking off a secondary war, a storage war. In a world where we're producing millions of barrels a day of excess crude, the countries and the companies that control storage are in a great position because they can continue pumping, they can fill up that storage, they have a place to go. That's power. No one is buying all that oil producers are still pumping. But producers still have to put it somewhere. So they're searching for more storage, looking for a place, any place, to park their oil. There have even been reports of trains that are used uh, in the United States and Canada to move oil around. That They're just filling up like 100-car trains and just parking them. Sounds like my creative use of my refrigerator now as I stuff it full of two weeks of COVID shopping. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, I was joking around with someone saying, you know, I can't wait till the first person, you know, flies over some backyard in Houston and finds somebody who's emptied out their backyard pool and filled it up with crude oil. I mean, it's going to happen sooner or later. So in this storage war, is anyone winning? Well, Saudi Arabia, right after they said that they were going to increase production, went out and leased, uh, by our count, about 24 of these giant crude tankers. They're actually called VLCCs, very large crude carriers. These are big ships that carry oil. Enormous ships, yes. So big that they have trouble fitting through the Panama Canal. And Saudi contracted with these ships just to store its own oil? Yep, yep. There's actually a term for this in the oil industry, oil on the water. Russell says there's a lot of oil on the water right now. But storing oil in gigantic ships and rail cars, those are temporary solutions. Eventually, the system will seize up. The world will run out of oil storage. The experts that we've interviewed said we're probably talking three weeks, four weeks, no one's quite sure. But eventually, we're going to have to see a wholesale shutdown of the industry. You can't just keep producing oil that no one wants. So to avoid that shutdown, this week, OPEC and Russia came back to the bargaining table to see if they could strike a truce to raise the price of oil and save their industry. The OPEC meeting that happened must have been the most heavily anticipated OPEC meeting in 20 years or more. Everyone wanted to know whether Saudi Arabia was going to blink, whether Russia was going to come to the table, whether there was going to be a grand coalition of lots of countries coming together to stabilize the oil markets. Russell says this meeting was crazy. Saudi and Russia wanted to get each other to cut production, and they were also pressuring other countries to cut their production, too. Things got so heated that at one point, the Mexican delegation left the meeting. Mexico eventually came back. And in the end, there was a deal. The bottom line is that Russia and Saudi Arabia have agreed to a 6 million barrel a day cut, which they're hoping will grow as some of the other countries in OPEC and oil producing nations, possibly even including the United States, join within the next couple of days. Oil traders were not particularly happy with that, and oil actually ended up down about 10% on the day after starting the day very high with high expectations. So even though Saudi Arabia and Russia are cutting production, 
after this meeting, oil prices dropped. Can you explain that? Sure. Traders wanted more. If you're going to balance the market, you need cuts uh, significantly more than 6 or 10 million barrels a day. And there were warnings from OPEC that if collectively the oil industry keeps producing too much oil and filling up storage, you're going to be looking at oil prices in the single digits, below $10 a barrel. When was the last time oil prices were below $10 a barrel? Oh, my goodness. Um, you probably have to go back to the 1980s, the last time you saw prices this low. But to put these cuts in perspective... These are also the biggest cuts that OPEC has agreed to. Well, that's what's so amazing. This is the largest cut that anyone can remember, and yet it wasn't enough. And that, in a nutshell, is just the extreme position that the oil market finds itself in right now. Russia and Saudi Arabia coming back to the negotiating table and cutting a deal wasn't enough to raise oil prices. It also didn't change the fact that the world is going to run out of oil storage. At most, this deal bought oil producers just a little more time. But Russell says that when that time's up, the landscape for oil producers could look really different. One of the fascinating questions that we're dealing with right now is that we're going through this extended period of time where people are learning that, you know, maybe I don't need to fly to every meeting I have. Maybe I can do more uh, online meetings. There's also a chance that a lot of people coming out of this because of growing concern about international travel uh, won't want to travel as much as they had in the past. So one of the fascinating questions is, we went into this period with a global 100 million barrel a day oil market. What are we going to come out of it as? Nobody believes we're going to come out at 100 million, but we're not sure. Is it going to be 95 million? I mean, how much is the market going to shrink? We just don't know how big that is yet. That's all for today, Friday, April 10th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knutson and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is made by Peter Bresnan, Gerard Cole, Pia Godkari, Renita Jablonski, Annie Minoff, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rose Strasser, and Rob Zipko. Our show is engineered by Griffin Tanner with help from Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, Emma Munger, So Wiley, Bobby Lord, Keen Collective, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Joy Crane. Thanks for listening. See you on Monday.